Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. In previous episodes, we have examined the history and activities surrounding the fort at Prospect Bluff and then its destruction and grim aftermath. In this episode, historian Dale Cox returns to give us the rest of the story on many of the key figures involved. While the Americans executed the fort's leaders, how did they treat Abraham? What became of the other survivors? Who was the Forbes agent who cared for the injured Maroons whom the Americans had deemed too injured to treat? Who was the Kaweta leader who captured some 100 Maroons outside the fort? What was the brutal fate that awaited the British officer who removed any remaining Maroons in the fort's vicinity to a black Seminole town further inside Florida? What does a long overlooked letter from Lieutenant Colonel Duncan Clinch tell us about the Americans' intentions for the self-liberated blacks within Spanish Florida's borders? And what was the harrowing fate of Mary Ashley, a black Maroon who hoisted the British flag each morning helping with firing artillery, and who was buried in dirt by the explosion. After being returned to slavery, she was redeemed some decades later by the British officer responsible for overseeing the fort's operations back in 1816. Dale Cox discusses all this and more. Dale Cox, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thanks, uh, I'm happy to be here. How many people died at the fort at Prospect Bluff when the hot shot hit? There's a very interesting letter by William Hamley that was written shortly after the explosion took place and immediately after the U.S. troops left. Hamley was a Spanish citizen who was married to a Creek Indian woman. He lived on the Apalachicola River at the time of the explosion. And he went to the fort site as the U.S. troops were there. He remained there after they left. And he reported that as they left, they left a number of the wounded people still there in the mud at the site, that they were so badly wounded that the soldiers didn't think they would survive, so they didn't bother collecting them up to return them to slavery. They just left them, and that others came out of the woods as the soldiers left, and that they were badly wounded. So he took them back to his home up where Bluntstown, Florida, is today, and did the best that he could to feed them and to try to take care of their, he and his wife did, but then most of them died. And so there is another burial site for the dead of the fort there at Bluntstown, Florida. He did not say how many. Based on his description of what he saw there, apparently there was a significant number. He did give some of the names in his letters that he wrote, both to Cuba and to some of his friends in Pensacola and in the Bahamas, and so he did list some names. He also just specifically said a number of them. Hambly had been a lieutenant in the Colonial Marines during the time that Nichols was at the fort, so he was very familiar 
with these occupants of the fort, he was speaking clearly in addition to the 50 or so survivors that Lieutenant Colonel Quench and other U.S. officers talked about. So these would be survivors in addition to the 50 that the United States reports mentioned. This would mean that in addition to the 50 that the United States talked about, Hambly's talking about survivors in addition to those. This would mean that we're probably now talking about 70 to 80 to maybe even 90 survivors. That's an interesting fact that takes us into a larger group of people who at least survived for some time after the initial capture of the fort that we had not known about. Most of them died. Of the 50 survivors that Clinch and the other U.S. Army officers talked about, we know that about 30 of those died at the site. Of those, about 20 were returned to slavery or at least were taken prisoner. Most of those went back to Spanish possessions in terms of Pensacola or St. Augustine. They were returned to slavery. Nine were taken back to Fort Scott in Georgia. Those nine were never returned to slavery because no one was willing to take the long journey down through Creek Indian Territory to claim them. And so they eventually were released December when Fort Scott was evacuated by the U.S. military. The U.S. military did not carry them back to the next nearest fort that they evacuated to Fort Gaines, Georgia, and they were released at that time. Where had Hambly taken those very critically injured survivors? Hambly took them back with him to his home at Spanish Bluff, which today's Bluntstown. He wrote that they continued to die one or two at a time, which would mean that they were buried there at Spanish Bluff or today's Bluntstown, Florida. Most of them died. A few did survive, and they continued to live with his family. As far as we can tell, he did his best to protect them from being returned to slavery. He did write a couple of letters to business owners with the Forbes Company who laid claim to them. Hamley never returned to work for John Forbes and Company after this incident at Prospect Bluff. He did write letters to some of the owners of the Forbes Company in which he said they don't want to go back. And he said, I'm doing my best to feed them, used all of my winter stock of provisions to try to take care of them. I've used all the medicine I have trying to take care of them. They don't want to go back. It would be best to just leave them here. And Forbes said? They never responded to him as best I can find. I can't find any letters in which they mention anything about returning them. I think they were so badly injured that they just never made an effort to recover. Any of the people from the fort who were capable of being returned to slavery that the U.S. Army had returned them Pensacola aboard a Spanish ship and that those who had been left behind were so badly that there was no need in the views of Colonel Clinch and the others of sending them back. These who Hambly took home with him were so badly maimed, they saw no value in them, the U.S. Army's officers did, in terms of returning them to slavery. What's the brief backstory on Hambly? Hambly had grown up in Spanish Florida. His father had been a British citizen during the British era in Florida in 73 to 1783. William Hambly, his son, had lived in Spanish Florida during the second Spanish era. He was a deerskin trader. He owned a small farm there at what is now Bluntstown. 
He had worked for John Forbes and company, successor of Panton Leslie and company. He had worked at Prospect Bluff when the trading post was there. He did sign up with the British Colonial Marines when Nichols arrived there. He served as an interpreter and a lieutenant in the Colonial Marines. But after this explosion, he never returned to work for Forbes and company. I think he, after that explosion, he just saw no interest in returning to work for the trading company again. He, after that, served as an interpreter for the Creek Nation. There's a lot of speculation about him, about where his ends were. I think they changed a lot over time. Prior to the explosion of the Ford, there's uh, some indication that he maybe began to side with the United States. He did side with the United States during the First Seminole War. But he also really began to change his views about slavery a lot after this explosion of the fort. He saw some things that really shocked him after this explosion of the fort. He wrote letters to the captain general in Cuba saying, how could we let such a thing happen? You've got to send troops here to stop these type of invasions from happening. These people invaded our country and they destroyed the fort on our soil and killed all of these people. We can't allow this type of thing to happen. We know that they remained with him at least up until 1821, you know, when Florida became part of the United States. After that, we know very little about them. I believe that some of them are or were the ancestors of some of the African-Americans who continue to live in that area of Northwest Florida. There are African-Americans in that area who have a tradition that their ancestors were at Prospect Bluff and survived the explosion. I've talked to people who live in that area who have this tradition that their ancestors were at what they call the Black People's Fort. They tell of their grandparents telling them stories of this fort and how their ancestors were free at one point and lived at this fort, and that the army came and blew it up with a bomb, as they call it. And they tell of how their grandparents told them this story, that when they were children, they heard the story, but they didn't believe it, that in those days that people who were African-Americans could have had a fort and could have been free. It's a very interesting legend that still survives in a very small area of northwest Florida. But they do tell the story that they descended from free African-Americans who had a fort. And so I believe that they likely are descended from some of the survivors that Hambly rescued from the mud of the fort after the explosion. We've discussed on our listeners know Abraham was there. But there may be misunderstanding about where he went from the fort. Abraham was there. I think some of the confusion comes from what was written about Abraham many years ago, from what we've been able to learn about Abraham more recently, based on archival research. Abraham was living in Pensacola at the time that Nichols and Woodbine arrived on the Apalachicola River in 1814. He was living in slavery in Pensacola, which was in part of Spanish Florida. When Woodbine arrived in Pensacola, Abraham self-liberated and went to Fort St. Michael or Fort San Miguel, a Spanish fort there in Pensacola, that the Spanish turned over to the British to occupy because they were afraid at that time that Andrew Jackson was about to attack Pensacola. And so Abraham went into this fort. When you went into a British Marines post, you were instantly set free under British law. 
And so Abraham became free. He joined the British Colonial Marine. He became a private in the British Colonial Marines and received you know, Marines training, a military training from Woodbine and from Nichols there. When Jackson attacked Pensacola in November 1814, Abraham went with the other British Colonial Marines to Prospect Bluff. Uh, he was at Prospect Bluff. He likely was also at uh, the second fort, which was up where Chattahoochee, Florida, is located today. And he was among the British colonial Marines who remained there when the British evacuation took place in late spring of 1815. Abraham remained there. I know has been some things written that he may have left the fort prior to the attack on it in July of 1816. But according to U.S. military records, after the explosion, among the American Maroons that were captured there, there was a man named Abraham. Abraham was originally from Georgia. When he was captured, he gave them his identity as being Abraham or Abram, originally from Georgia, although at the time he had been captured, he was living in Pensacola. He didn't tell them that because he didn't want to be returned to Pensacola. He was taken to Fort Scott, remained at Fort Scott in custody from August of 1860 until December of 1860. No one came to Fort Scott to claim him, again, because it was the Creek Indian Territory, and no slave owner or claimant of slaves was going to go through that territory and risk their lives to claim He remained at Fort Scott until December of 1860. When the U.S. Army evacuated Fort Scott, they released those Maroons who they were holding prisoner. Abraham made his way to the Suwannee River, where there was a large settlement of Maroons there adjacent to Bow Lake's town. That town was led by the Maroon leader Nero. Nero had also served in a colonial marine. Abraham went there. He remained there until 1818 when Jackson's army attacked Bolek's town and Nero's town. He fought in the battle at Old Town, and then he made his way south into the Alachua Prairie area. He lived there. He, of course, became a sense-bearer for Ekinope and you New know, Osceola, and many of the noted people at that time. The rest is history. A noted figure of the Second Seminole War, or the Second Phase of Seminole Wars, as Native Americans know it. Abraham was involved in the Day Battle until capture. He was sent west to Days, Oklahoma, where he died. Abraham was like many of the Maroons who served in the colonial Marines. In Spanish territory, many of these individuals were different than what we think of as the slaves who were living on the plantations in the United States at the time. Many of them were craftsmen. They were carpenters. Many of them had trades as varied as being surgeon's assistants. They could work on ships. They were potters. They had a variety of trades. Many of them were literate. They could speak multiple languages. They could speak Spanish. They could speak, you know, the Muscogee language or, or the Nicosuke language. They could speak English. Because they lived in a different lifestyle than those working in the fields and the cotton fields and so forth of the United States, they were living in seaport towns like Pensacola where their skills were different and where their lives were different. And so they possessed more of the types of skill sets that you expect to find in a town. They possessed multiple languages, that they possessed multiple skills. They could blend well with a much more international type population. For someone like Abraham, 
that meant that they could fit well in many different types with Abraham in Pensacola. He could speak different languages. He could do different things. When he joined the military, he also gained military training. He received European-style military training and light infantry tactics. He learned tactics. He learned strategy. He learned all of these because he could speak different languages. He was valuable as an interpreter. When he joined with the Seminole and the Miccosukee after the explosion of the fort, then he brought those skills with him. That helped him gain the great fame that he achieved as a leader and as an advisor as well. Then British Captain Woodbine came in the fall and picked up any survivors who the Americans had not taken. His is an interesting story. Woodbine was a Bahamian trader before the War of 1812. He was a smuggler. He was a deerskin trader who came into Florida and traded with the Native Americans, violation of the agreement that John Forbes and company had with the Spanish that gave them an exclusive license to carry on trade with the Native Americans in Florida. Woodbine was one of these guys who'd slip in and out and smuggle goods into Florida, carry on trade with the Native Americans along the Panhandle Coast. He knew the language. He knew how to bring ships in and out of the Apalachicola Bay and some of the other bays along the coast of Florida. He knew the area pretty well, knew the waters pretty well. When the British decided to open a military expedition into the Gulf Coast region, Woodbine already had militia experience in the Bahamas. He was a native of Jamaica. He knew the region pretty well. And so they reached out to him and offered him a post in the Royal Marine. They took him with them, and he led the initial wave of this expedition to the Gulf Coast. He already had contacts with the Seminole and the Lower Creek Indians area in the region. Woodbine was familiar with them, knew them, knew how to talk with them, knew the languages. And so he came in. He was the one who directed this expedition to St. Vincent Island initially, and then up into Apalachicola Bay and then right to Prospect Bluff. He was promoted to captain. He made contact with the Perryman family. He knew how to reach them. And, of course, the Perryman family was the family that invited the British there in the first place. So Woodbine knew this area. He knew these people. He knew how to work these contacts in the region. After the war, Woodbine came back. He arrived in the fall of 1816. They had had rumors of this American attack. He came back on a schooner. He arrived. He found that this fort had been destroyed. Immediately, additional survivors, these are in addition to the ones that Hamley had rescued, so we know there were more survivors who came out of the woods at Prospect Bluff. They came out to meet with Woodbine. He brought them aboard his schooner, carried them around to the mouth of the Suwannee, and carried them up to Nero's town where they joined with about a total of about 200 or so male survivors and their family who were established there at Nero's town. They were continuing to conduct military drills. They were continuing to uh, practice all of the military arts there at Nero's town. And they had, prior to the explosion, moved some of the ammunition and weapons from Prospect Bluff over to Nero's town. So some of the military hardware that Nichols had left behind had survived by it already having been removed in Nero's town. So there was a secondary magazine over 
at Narrowstown. Woodbine carried some of the survivors over there, and of course Abraham was there, Nero was one of the others was there. There was also another lieutenant from the Royal Marines over there, Robert Ambrose, was in that area working some kind of scheme that he had underway over there on his own. Woodbine met with him as well, and then Woodbine returned to the Bahamas at that point. Woodbine was involved with this individual, Sir Gregor McGregor, who launched an expedition to Fernandina in 1817. People who were more familiar with the expeditions against Fernandina during that time can tell you a lot more about him than I can. But Woodbine was involved with him during those days. Woodbine got himself into a little bit of trouble in the Bahamas, and so then he moved down onto the coast of South America, got re-involved with slavery, established a plantation down there, and then later, as fate would have it, was killed in a slave uprising. The slaves rose up and slaughtered both, not just Woodbine, but his entire family. Yes. Who settled Nero's town, and how many of the survivors made it down there from various ways? Well, some of them were from Bolek's group originally and from Nero's group originally, which was the group that was down on Payne's Prairie at the time of the Patriot War. During those encounters between King Payne and Bolek during the Patriot War, and when Payne's town and Bolek's towns were burned at that time, and when Bolek led the survivors of Payne's town and Bolek's town over to the Swanee. And so some of them were from that group. Others were ones that Woodbine had brought to Prospect Bluff from the St. Augustine area. And so when the British left, some of them left and went back over to Bolek's town on the Swanee and lived with Nero there. They had been colonial Marines, and so some of them went back there. Others were survivors of the explosion. Now, whether they were people who, as McIntosh's creeks were coming down and sweeping down to surround the fort, whether they were outside the fort and escaped, or whether they were actual survivors of the explosion, were inside the fort and got away during fusion immediately following this explosion, we don't know. We know that there were farms for 50 miles up and down the river surrounding the fort that had been established by them. And so we don't know how many of the people living on those farms made it into the fort and how many escaped into the woods. There's a question there that at the time of the attack, how many of the people living on those farms went into the fort and how many broke through the woods, so to speak. We know that McIntosh captured around 100 people, men, women, and children, as he was sweeping south down the river as Clinch was coming down the river in his flatboat. McIntosh was coming by land, and he captured around 100 prisoners. So we know that south of the fort, those farms continued down the river. So perhaps some of these people were people who were living south of the fort who broke through the woods. We don't know. It is said in the American reports that there were around 320 people in the fort. We don't know the actual size of the community at the fort at the time of the attack. So a lot of that is all speculation. We know based on the American reports that there were around 320 people in the fort at the time of the attack, but we don't know the actual size of the community at the time of the attack. It could have been 500. It could have been 600 people in that settlement at the time of the attack. We just don't know. 
And so we get stuck on these numbers, and these numbers are estimates. We have to remember that as well. When they say they killed 270, that's also an estimate. They just couldn't, couldn't count the numbers. We don't know. Woodbine didn't keep a list? He did not. If he had a list, it hasn't survived or it hasn't been found. We don't know. And the same thing on the casualty numbers and on the numbers of survivors. These are all estimates. We didn't know until within the last five or six years that it was even possible to assemble any kind of list of names of people who are there. All of this is new to me. And that's one thing that I've been working very diligently on is to begin that process of creating lists of names. But this is all new, and this is something that is going to be for a long time to come. I've created lists of hundreds of names, but I feel like there are hundreds of names still out there. You just mentioned McIntosh's Creeks. Who is McIntosh? William McIntosh was the Creek or the Kawatal chief of the town of Kawatal, which are Kawita, as people pronounce it today. It was a lower creek town located about where Columbus, Georgia is located today. He was fairly anglicized chief who had fought on Andrew Jackson's side during the Creek War of 1813-1814. Benjamin Hawkins had convinced him to lead a big slave-catching raid down the Apalachicola River and attack the fort. He was leading about 250 Lower Creek warriors who were going to go down and they were going to be rewarded for every maroon they could bring back to uh, Hawkins. And Hawkins was the U.S. agent for Indian Affairs at that time. On the way down the river, these warriors succeeded in capturing somewhere around 100 of these maroons. And these only appear at one point in all of the U.S. reports and letters about the expedition. And it's just in one officer's letters where he mentions that McIntosh captured around 100 and took them back to the Creek Nation. And they were not in the fort at the time. They were in the villages surrounding the fort. As they swept in so fast by land, they captured around 100 people. You've mentioned how the Americans took Maroons to places like Pensacola, returning them to their former masters. I thought Spain had abolished slavery. Slavery was abolished during the first Spanish era in Florida. It was legal during the second Spanish era in Florida. This was because by this point there were so many U.S. or former U.S. citizens living in Florida. But also Africans could live free in Florida during the second era as well. So you could have slaves in Florida, but also people of color could live free in Florida during the second Spanish era. In fact, the majority of people of color living in Florida were free during the Second Era. You could keep slaves in Florida during the Second Spanish Era. If you moved there, you could with slaves, you could have slaves, you could buy and sell slaves. I mean, slaves were imported into Florida during the Second Spanish Era. Also, though, the difference between that and the United States was that the Spanish government made sure that a slave could purchase his freedom at a reasonable price. In other words, a person claiming a slave could not set the price so high that a slave could not purchase their own freedom. How could slaves purchase their freedom? They were not labor-earning workers. 
they had days when they could go out and work and make money. In Spanish Florida, they could go like on a Saturday and work and make money that they could then use to go and save money for themselves and to buy their own freedom. That happened a lot in Spanish Florida. It didn't happen so much in the United States, but it did happen a lot in Spanish Florida that slaves purchased their own freedom. The Americans called it the Negro Fort. It was intended long-term to be an Indian fort. The British intended to leave that fort there for the Native Americans, even after the evacuation of the Maroons. And the Choctaw were not going anywhere. They were going to stay there. Even after the Maroons were evacuated, Choctaw were still going to be there, and the fort would remain an active fort for the Seminole and the Pasuki. The ammunition and the arms that are stored in this fort, it all belongs to them. The British have left all of this there for their use. They've been trained in light infantry tactics by Nichols and Woodbine, the British officer who had this fort built. It's all for them that all of this material is there. The Maroons who are in this fort are there just waiting for the British to come back and finish the evacuation. All of the arms, all of the ammunition, all of the supplies in this fort that are not being to sustain the Maroons until the British return, all of this is there for them. It's basically is an arsenal that has been built to ply the Red Sticks, the Seminoles of the Lower Creek, the Sookie. It's an important place for them. Fort was going to remain a fact of life. Garcon and the other Maroons are guarding this post, but the Amakla, Francis, McQueen, the others, they come there on a routine basis and they get action for hunting. Uh, when they need their weapons repaired, they can go there and get them repaired. When they need new muskets or rifles, they can go there, they get whatever they need. They routinely visit the fort. They also know that this is a fallback position for them should they need it. They're there, they're living in villages within reasonable supporting distance of them. And in fact, when the U.S. troops begin to approach the fort, when the U.S. gunboats come up into the bay, when the U.S. forces begin to make their way down the Apalachicola River, Gorsan sends out couriers to notify all of the different groups that an attack is underway. Immediately, these different Native American groups begin to rally to organize and begin to move to reinforce the fort as the attack is underway. Unfortunately for the Maroons in the fort, they just don't make it in time. What was the context and background for the execution of the American soldier that they had captured? We have to understand, looking at it from, first off, from their perspective, they have been attacked. When the U.S. gunboats come into Apalachicola Bay, these gunboats are not sitting offshore. They're not off the coast. They enter Apalachicola Bay and blockade the mouth of the Apalachicola River. They are not sitting out off the coast. They actually enter the bay and enforce a blockade of the mouth of the Apalachicola River. The Maroons, including Garcon, go down to the mouth of the river to see what's going on. They row a small vessel out to the bay to see why these U.S. ships of war are out there. When they do that, they're fired upon. They go back into the mouth of the Apalachicola River. A day or so later, the U.S. gunboats send armed boat parties into the mouth of the Apalachicola River. These boat parties are in small vessels that are armed with artillery. They come into the mouth of the river. The U.S. reports indicate they're looking for water, but 
Garcon and the Choctaw leader have no way of knowing why they're coming into the mouth of the river. What they see are sailors in small boats with artillery and muskets coming into the mouth of the river. Now, this is Spanish territory they're coming in. They're already in Spanish territory when they enter Apalachicola Bay. They're enforcing a blockade. They have fired upon Garcon's men and the Choctaw leader. They enter the mouth of the river. Garcon and the Choctaw leader fire on them. They capture a prisoner. They take him up to the fort. This prisoner is executed by the Choctaws in the Red Stick way. And the Red Stick way of executing someone is to burn them at the stake. These Choctaw are Red Sticks. Now, in the view of the people in the fort, they're under attack. And the U.S. has attacked. By this point, they also know that U.S. forces are coming down the Apalachicola River. They know that the mouth of the river is blockaded and they've been attacked. They know that U.S. forces and 250 Powhatan, who are their enemies, are coming down the Apalachicola River. They know they're either going to be returned to slavery or they're going to be killed. First off, the Choctaw know they're going to be killed because they know what happens to Red Sticks when they're captured. Garcon knows that he is either going to fight to the death or he is going to be returned to slavery along with his wife and child and with every other person in that fort. And by this point, they're flying the British flag and the red flag. And that red flag is not a symbol that they intend to give no mercy, but that they intend to fight to the death. So that's what they know is going to happen to them. But you have to understand that they know by this point that they are under attack. And that's at the point that the prisoner is at. The United States had no right to destroy that fort. It was not on U.S. territory. And that's a simple fact. The United States had no legal right to destroy a fort in someone else's country. Whether you look at it as Spanish territory, whether you look at it as Native American territory, that fort was not on U.S. soil. The U.S. has gone into foreign territory, and that's where they are at this point. In addition, those U.S. vessels have entered a bay in a foreign country, and they have opened fire on a boat in a bay in foreign territory. Everything that happens beyond that point is because the United States has blockaded a river and is moving a military force down a river in a foreign country. Given what you've outlined, was it a foregone conclusion that the Americans would attack this fort? That's a difficult thing to say. It depends on how they would have viewed a Native American force 60 miles from the U.S. border with heavy artillery. And examining the documents that exist about American intentions, what did you find from a letter by Lieutenant Colonel Clinch? Yeah, that winter after the destruction of the fort, we're talking in the winter of 1816, 1817, Clinch wrote a letter to the chiefs at Miccosukee in which he said, you must return every escaped slave who is living in your towns or else we're going to cross the border and we're going to attack you and we will continue to attack you until we have compelled you. And I think this is setting the stage for the Seminole Wars. Puts it in written clarity because all of those who have argued for years that the Seminole Wars were a gigantic slave-catching expedition, this is prior to the beginning of the very first attack of the Seminole Wars. This is just before the beginning of 1817. We're 11 months before Fowltown. And here's the guy who was at Fort Scott before it all begins. And he's writing to the chiefs at Miccosukee. And he's saying to them, 
you've got to deliver up all of the escaped slaves in your towns or else we're going to march on you and we're going to attack you and we're going to keep attacking you until you give up all of the escaped slaves living in your town. And, I mean, there it is. You can't make it any clearer than he does. This is before it all began. When I found that letter, I was just astounded by it because here's the guy who, 20 years later, is right there on the front line when the Dade battle happens and the fighting there on, on the Wittlacoochee happens and at the Cove happens. And it's the same guy again at Fort Drain. And here he is right there at the beginning of it all. And he's saying what so many people continue to say today about what it was all about. How did the presence of this fort impact the later attacks and counterattacks that characterized the start of the first Seminole War, just north of the fort on the Apalachicola River? Well, it definitely impacted a lot because one of the people who had a large stockpile of ammunition at the Negro Fort that he considered to be his own was a chief named Nehemiah. And among those leading the relief force that was marching for the Negro Fort was Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was on his way to try to save the Negro Fort when the explosion took place. And Nehemiah was in by the loss of all of his weaponry and his ammunition. Now, Nehemiah had lost his home during the Creek War of 1813-1814. He had been forced to evacuate down to the Florida-Georgia border. He had been forced to build a new town. Then he had been forced to give up that town and build another town. He had finally settled down and was finally raising cattle again. People were finally building new homes. He was counting on this weaponry and this ammunition to be able to defend himself and to protect his home and his people. And it's all blown up. And he's furious that the United States went down there and did this. And he is determined that he is not going to give up another inch of his land. The United States is now claiming under the Treaty of Fort Jackson that where he has built his new home, 100 miles from where he lived previously, now belongs to them. And this weaponry that he was depending on to defend his land has been destroyed. McIntosh has seized what of it remained. Fort Scott is built right across the river from where he's living. And they're telling him, you've got to go. And he's saying, even though everything I had was blown up in that fort that I was going to use to defend myself, I am not going to go. And they're telling him, if you don't go, we're going to move you. And so the stage is set. So it had a great deal. Um, and it also had a great deal to do with his inability to defend himself when the time came. We've talked about the well-known names of people who had been at the fort at Prospect Bluff. You've been able to relate the story of a female maroon who is less well-known, but her story is nevertheless just as compelling. Who is Mary Ashley? Mary Ashley was a young woman. She was uh, in her late teens, and she had gone with her husband and her family from St. Augustine to Prospect Bluff. Her husband was recruited by Captain Woodbine to go to Prospect Bluff and be a colonial Marine. And they were living there. They were among those who were not able to get room on the transports to go to Trinidad when the British withdrew. And so they were living at Prospect Bluff when the attack took place and when the fort was blown up. When we hear of her exploits, one thinks of Molly Pitcher or Deborah Sampson, 
from the American Revolution. Mary was active in the defense of the fort. According to a letter written by Colonel Nichols, who had close contact with several people who were intimately familiar with what took place during the battle. Mary was working as a member of one of the gun crews during the battle. She helped serve on one of the guns. He fought during the battle, as did a number of the women of the fort. Uh, the women were serving right alongside the men during the battle. Mary was going out every morning and hoisting the uh, Union Jack over the fort. She was serving on one of the gun crews, fighting against the Americans during the attack. When the explosion took place, she was up on the gun deck of the citadel of the fort, and she was hurled into the air by the explosion. She was buried in the earth when the explosion took place. She initially thought that she was dead. She described how she couldn't move and she couldn't see anything, and everything was dark. She thought that she was in nothingness, that couldn't move, she couldn't breathe. Then she slowly came to realize she was buried in the earth. She managed to get her nose above the ground where she breathed the air. She stayed buried for a couple of days, hoping that no one would find her. Eventually, an American soldier saw her nose above ground and dug her out of the ground and took her prisoner. She was turned over to the Spanish and sent back to slavery in St. August, even though her quote-unquote owner had been paid in silver her value by the British. In 1821, when the United States gained possession of Florida, Mary and her family were taken to Cuba by by the Spanish family that claimed her. She remained in Cuba the rest of her life. About two or three decades later, I guess it was two decades later, she managed to get to a British official in Cuba, and she made a claim that she was set free in Florida by Colonel Nichols, that she had been living at what she called a mud fort on the Apalachicola River during the War of 1812, and that Colonel Nichols had given her freedom papers that she had since lost. And she told this British official what had happened and that the Americans had come and blown up the fort with a bomb. And she told him everything that had happened and that she had been returned to slavery by the Americans and brought to Cuba. And that now she was going to be forced to work on this railroad that was being built in Cuba. This British official sent word back to Great Britain about what was going on and then wanted to know if anyone knew about this mud fort on the Apalachicola River. Someone finally remembered that by now Donald Nichols had been in Florida at this time, and so they contacted him. He was retired from the military by then. But he remembered Mary Ashley, and he wrote back a long account of Mary and how he remembered her and that he had had contact with people at the time who told him the story of what happened to the fort and about how Mary had served on a gun crew and how, yes, she had been free and that she was a courageous woman and told all of her story. The story went back to Cuba. Finally, in Nichols' personal journal, there is a note in which he said, alas, poor Mary has been set free. And so Mary Ashley, after serving 20 more years in slavery, finally received her second freedom. We know about the Maroon diaspora from the fort at Prospect Bluff. Are there still descendants of the Maroons in the area of the fort at Prospect Bluff? Yes, there are descendants of Maroons who do live in that area. 
they are some who live in Jackson County, which is about 60 miles upriver from the fort. There is a small community called Springfield, and there is a second small community called Jerusalem. And there are some descendants of Maroons who live in that area and do preserve memories of their ancestors living at what they call the Black People's Fort, which is the way that their grandparents and great-grandparents described it. I think it's interesting to realize that these were people much like we are today. We think sometimes about these people of a different time who have passed the dust, but really they were living and breathing people, and their descendants still walk among us here in Florida and in Oklahoma and in Cuba and in Trinidad and in the Bahamas and in Newfoundland, Canada. They're right here around us, and we can still meet their descendants, and we can shake their hands, and we can learn from them because their stories are still here. Young Cox, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us again for this Seminole Wars. Very much enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.